3: <laughs> <laughs> baby,
4: baby. <laughs> Good morning, you're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. 5, 5 it's the 26th of March and this is the first show that we're doing fully remotely. Um, so you're hearing me, Max, on the line at the moment. Um, and then the rest of the show is actually going to be pre records today. So, bear with us over the next few weeks as we, you know, work out how to get amazing radical radio to you from our bedrooms and lounge rooms and off-site, but we will do absolutely the best we can. Um, So, it's a a really amazing show that we actually have for you this morning. Um, They're all interviews that I recorded last week, but they remain as relevant as ever, Um, focusing mostly on decarceration and the COVID-19. Um, pandemic that we're all currently experiencing. So first up this morning, we're going to be hearing from Alessio Scandura, um, who's over in Italy, who's going to talk about the impact of COVID-19 for people in prison, um, and also the need for decarceration. Then after that, we'll hear from Peaches about the impact on COVID-19 for sex workers locally. And then last up, we're going to be hearing from Marumoro Viapando, um, who's over in the United States, who's going to be talking about the very real um, threat of outbreak in immigration prisons and also the need for centering the leadership experiences and voices of people and communities impacted by incarceration and deportation when we're talking about, you know, COVID-19 in relation to um, prisons and immigration prisons around the world. So that's what we have lined up for you this morning here on Thursday Breakfast. But first up, we might ask Kate Kelly if she's got any news headlines for us.
5: Um, good morning, Uh I
4: Good
3: morning.
5: <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> okay, so first Over to you, Kate. About that, um, there isn't too much information about this yet, but there will be, um, I'm, sure, I'm sure, in the coming hours. But, um, across the nation, it's been decided that tenants cannot be evicted if they have financial hardship because of the economic fallout from the coronavirus. And the new measures that were enacted by the National Cabinet on Wednesday night... The National Cabinet met really late into the night, which is why we're only sort of hearing the beginning of how this will work and how long it'll go for. Um, Prime Minister Scott Morrison has previously said that the ban will be in place for six months because that's how long the government predicts the coronavirus and the fallout to go for. So that comes after New South Wales Parliament passed an amendment to allow the Housing Minister to ban evictions, a measure to bolster renters' rights in the current economic climate. So the National Cabinet does not make any decisions on rent freezes because tenancy law is a state issue, so there'll be further decisions to be made about that on Friday, so really watch this space. The New South South Wales Amendment was drafted by Greens member for Newtown Jenny Leong and empowers the ministers responsible for housing to ban evictions for renters through regulation. Right now, it's unclear if the national ban will follow um, sort of, I guess, a similar framework, but we'll know more about it later today. New South Wales is also considering releasing some of the state's 14,000 prisoners as part of its response to the growing crisis. The proposed law would apply to those people deemed, um, I guess, low-risk and, and vulnerable prisoners. And they would be subject to strict parole conditions. So that would include things like home detention, electronic monitoring and a pre-arranged schedule of movements. So introducing the bill um, to New South Wales Parliament on Wednesday, Attorney-General Mark Spixon said it was designed to protect the health of inmates and staff. And thousands of newly unemployed people queued up again on Wednesday as the economic fallout from the virus continued. The Social Service Minister Anne Ruston revealed that more than 123,000 people had tried to access the website on Tuesday morning as the economic impact of coronavirus crisis, uh, of the coronavirus crisis kind of deepens. So unemployed Australians have been told to not risk the queues at the actual Centrelink branch and instead head online to launch an intent to claim. The government on Sunday announced um it would double the job seeker payment to help assist those forced out of work due to the ac- economic impact of the coronavirus. And that's everything that's all your headlines.
4: Um and just on that last point, Kate, thank you so much for them. Um, I was listening to some some things that were sort of saying that for folks who are trying to get Centrelink payments who don't yet have a Centrelink number, they were being, you know, they were at some point at least being encouraged to, or they, they had to actually go to Centrelink offices to prove their identity, which just seems totally totally counterintuitive. Um, you know, in these times where we're all being encouraged to socially distance, and yet, you know, we see these images of hundreds, if not thousands, of people queuing outside Centrelink offices
5: yeah and I think it you know I saw jeremy poxon tweet um yesterday who is um the comms guy for the unemployed unemployment unemployed union and you know he said that he want you know he kind of just wanted to everyone to be really aware that the difficulties that all these new people were were facing with Centrelink were were up very horrible, yes, but they've been in the system for, you know, 20-plus years, and that if you're unemployed, you have to deal with the difficult bureaucracy and navigate a system that does crash all the time anyway.
4: Mm. Yeah, and and also not just the bureaucracy, but also just the, the very intentional and strategic effect that it has in terms of just, like... You know, really like shaming people and sort of the dehumanizing mm. nature of that sort of, that grind of the bureaucracy, which is then now compounded by also, you know, this, this, um, like public health crisis that we're experiencing. And so also forcing people into, you know, situations of greater risk of exposure and these sorts of things is, it feels like it's all sort of part of this bigger system that really is geared towards, um, you know, essentially punishing and dehumanizing people who have like limited or no employment. Yeah, definitely, hundred percent. And can I ask back to the the um, the very first headline that you gave us around eviction? Did you say is that so that that was a national ban on evictions? Yeah, I think, did I hear that right?
5: Yeah, yeah. So the so the national cabinet is pretty much meeting um, every every night at the moment, um, which I'm sure everyone's kind of noticed because every day there's a new announcement. Um, um, Prime Minister Scott Morrison was meant to talk. Last night, um and it was meant to be about renters, but uh, my understanding is that they met and the meeting went a bit too long. So at nine, about nine thirty, they said we're not gonna, he won't be making an announcement, uh, tonight. So I would expect that he'll make one this morning about it and we'll have a bit more detail. But there were a few media reports that trickled out um, that said, yeah, the, it's going to be a national ban. We have no idea what that would look like, the time frame about that. But obviously I think that will be welcomed broadly across the community.
4: Absolutely. And we might wrap it up there. But as you said, everyone stay tuned for further announcements this morning. Thanks so much, Kate. No, thank you, and every all to all listeners, yeah, stay tuned um for today's. Thursday breakfast. We've got some really incredible interviews this morning on decarceration and the impact of COVID-19 for folks in prison and for sex workers. Um, As I mentioned at the start of the show, um, this is our first episode that we're delivering to you entirely remotely, um, which is exciting. And also, you know, it's got its own challenges. But we are all thinking of you and we hope that everyone is staying safe and keeping well.
3: Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel a part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are but I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience.
6: If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed?
0: Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived
5: experience of homelessness. Support 3CR.
3: I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think, and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear.
7: Heartbeat, your heartbeat is the rhythm that you feel from the beginning. Yes, your heartbeats in sync with the land that you come from. Heartbeat. Your heartbeat is the rhythm that you feel from the beginning. Yes, your heartbeat in sync with the land that you come from. Heartbeat. Your heartbeat is the rhythm that you feel from the beginning. Yes, your heartbeats in sync with the land that you come from. Feeling the rhythm. I know that you feel it connected to music because you were in it before you were born. All of the people are walking and talking and breathing and singing their beginning in their own song. I have been waiting for so long for you to come back home. My trees felt you breathe in the sound of your heartbeat, heartbeat. Your heartbeat is. That you feel from the beginning Yes, your heartbeat In sync with the land that you come from Heartbeat Your heartbeat is the rhythm That you feel from the beginning Yes, your heartbeat In sync with the land that you come from Who is your friend? where is your strength?
8: to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. We're coming to you remotely this morning and during the coronavirus pandemic, we're still bringing you news, views and current affairs from a radical perspective. We've just got to be creative how we go about it. So stay tuned on Community Radio because we'll keep bringing you the important perspectives that mainstream media isn't covering. Hey everyone, you're on Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. I'm Max, and up next you're going to hear a conversation that I had with Alessio Scandura on the recent protests that have been happening in prisons across Italy during the coronavirus pandemic. And I just want to let you know that Alessio, like so many of us, is working from home at the moment. So he joined me on Skype, and there were quite a few background noises, you know, people making cups of tea at home and that sort of thing. Um, But do bear with us, um, because it's a really awesome conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on Thursday Breakfast, Alessio. First of all, would you just like to introduce yourself to listeners?
6: So I'm Alessio Scandurra. I coordinate the Observatory on Prison Condition in Italy, which is a long-running project of Antigone, the NGO I I work with. Uh, So we have been monitoring prisons and um, prison conditions for now... Uh, 20 years, and uh, so that's the main focus of, of our work.
8: And so, Alessio, what have been some of your concerns um, regarding the impacts of the coronavirus pandemic for people in prison in Italy?
6: Our main concern since the beginning was uh, the diffusion, the, the contagion in prison, and the consequences of the contagion in prisons, mm-hmm. uh, because of course, as, uh, in most country, prison are overpopulated environments, overcrowded environments, overcrowded places, and uh, hygiene and uh, hygiene standards usually are rather poor, so the risk of uh, contagion is, uh, it's, it's stronger than in many other contexts, and also usually prison population has poorer health condition compared to the general population. Uh, in Italy, prison population is rather old. Uh, people above 40 are the majority of prison population. Uh, so, this is one issue, and, and also the the prevalence of uh, respiratory issue is rather high compared to the general population. Health conditions are rather common uh more so than in the general population so you have you know, an unhealthy environment with uh, with peop- with vulnerable uh people in it so obviously the situation is it's, it's very uh, it's very delicate and it's very uh, dangerous
8: and what's been happening up until now in terms of government response to the coronavirus pandemic in Italy particularly in relation to people in prison
6: well at the beginning because the the diffusion of uh, the of the virus started in, in some areas of the country so even though the prison system is managed at central level, at national level in Italy, there is some degree of autonomy at local level. And also, uh, healthcare is not managed by the, healthcare in prison is not managed by prison themselves. is managed by the national healthcare system. Mm-hmm. So, uh, preventive measures at the beginning were different in different regions of the country and this also affected uh, uh, family visits uh, and um, the possibility of ngos and some kind of professional to access or not to access prison uh, in, in different way around the country uh, starting uh, in in the areas where starting first in the areas where the, the contagion was uh uh, was higher in Northern Italy. On the 8th of March, the government uh, made uh, a decree, a piece of legislation, uh, in fact, stopping all contacts between inmates and families. On, on. Uh, so families could, could, as a general rule, family couldn't visit anymore. Prisoners could rely only to on, on phone calls and to some extent, on uh video, how do you call it skype uh which is wasn't widely available in italian britain uh so there was this measure of the government of saying people cannot prisoners cannot meet with the family prisoners should have more phone calls should have more uh, skype calls, but that really depends. Not only on the legislation, in the short, in, in the shorter term, it also depends on technical uh, aspects, but the, the fact that the, the, the prison is equipped uh, with uh, computers and tablets and what is needed, but also that their telephone infrastructure is capable of uh, accommodating more phone calls per, per prisoner.
8: And Alessio, what was the response from people incarcerated in prisons across Italy to these restrictions?
6: The reaction in the prison population was quite ha- unexpectedly uh, harsh. So we had riots, we had protests, uh, we had, uh, a part, as far as I know, there were, there were riots in around 40, 40 45 different prisons. Uh, Consider that in the country we have 200 prisons. And during the riots, uh, or immediately after, because of the riots, uh, 13 prisoners died. As a consequence of the riots. riots. So far, no uh, sign of violence has been uh, reported by... um, people in charge of the investigation and of uh, the examination of the bodies after the death which uh, uh, so apparently all the information we have uh, link the death to overdose uh, of uh, methadone. it's unprecedented so mm-hmm. we we don't really know how how to deal with this because the source of information is very uh, reliable Uh, but at the same time, it's the first time we hear that. Mm -hmm. It's it's the first time we have, you know, so many people dying because of that.
8: And Alessio, earlier you mentioned that there were protests and riots across 40 or more prisons in Italy. Were there particular calls or demands that people were making in these protests across the different prisons?
6: We have been thinking a lot about this because, you know, suddenly in many different places, probably with no uh coordination at all, but simply you know you, you hear that in another prison you hear on television that in another prison there is a riot going on and you and you start protesting yourself uh, and uh, at the core of the protest, there was fear i would say uh fear for this you know new pandemic situation uh going on which you don't know much about, and they know that they are in a Overcrowded and unhealthy environment. And they know that uh, protection, uh, for, for, for instance, uh, isolation cells for people that need to be isolated are not available that much. They know that, you know, that their situation is, 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 is dangerous. And at the same time, probably this sudden, because in some area of the country, this has been progressing. For a while. But in other countries, the 8th of March was a sudden leap forward in terms of closing the prison. So probably people got scared also because of that. They said, you know, either my, my, the warden of my prison is it's gone mad or, you know, maybe the, 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 the pandemia is in my own town where my family lives. Mm. Yes. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. This wasn't explained enough to prisoners, the reasons weren't explained enough. For, even, even the fact that uh, uh, visits, you know, were stopped for a while, prisoners weren't even told that. What they were told is that, yeah, today, from now on, you cannot uh, go on prison leave if you usually go on prison leave.
8: Right. And Alessia, in your view, what are some of the things that need to happen from here?
6: We need a lot of things now, but one of, one of the things we need to do is to release as many prisoners as possible, to reduce overcrowding, to make empty cell available if they are needed, uh, to get rid of older prisoners, get rid of prisoners that are in, in, in bad health conditions. So we need to reduce prison population. And this is something that... Uh, it's not so alien to our culture we have been doing that for for you know for years for decades recently this has become less common because uh uh well because the general change in the in the political climate to the populist government and so on so now it's common than before this idea of releasing prisoners to manage Uh, prison issues
8: Yeah, I'd really love to hear a little bit more about Italy's history of decarceral approaches and whether you think that influences Italy's response in this current moment of
4: crisis
6: I don't know, it's a a very odd moment for us because as I say decarceration, I I, I dare to say that decarceration was the main uh, penitentiary policy in Italy you know, the main way prisons have been managed in Italy for many, many years was through uh, incarceration, to general pardons, amnesty, uh, that sort of stuff. Uh-huh. We have been doing that for, for, for many, many years, and, and the prison population in Italy declined uh, in, in, in the history of the Italian Republic. For a long while, prison population have been declining. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then this trend slowly changed in Italy and it changed around the world as yeah. well. In, uh, uh, but, but we still kept using those kind of major It was, it was politically acceptable, the idea that, you know, oh my God, we have too many prisons What do we do? Shall we build more prisons? No. Let's, let's release, you know, 10,000 of them. Doesn't make much difference. And we have been doing that for a while. But over the, the last, oh, we have the general, the last general pardon in 2006. Uh, then, then we haven't had one since then. And, and we probably won't have one in the future because we changed the legislation. So now it's even more difficult to have a general pardon. We introduced other measures of decarceration measure decar- after a decision of the European Court of Human Rights in 2012, 2013, for the, over, over a period of, of a couple of years. Uh, and at the, in those days it, seemed re- and it still seemed reasonable and, and feasible, politically feasible and rational. Now the the political mood in this respect changed radically. So even though this uh, should be the moment where we are more prone than ever to release some, you know, some part of prison population, on the other hand, because of the political climate, because of the political culture developing, it's more difficult today than it was three years ago, four years ago, six years. Yeah. So, I find it in you know, for 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 the Italian political culture. I wouldn't say that uh, uh. the present situation can set up a trend. Mm. All of this is very new and unprecedented. So you know, it's very difficult to to make any to, to see the future. But uh, the perception is very. It's very dark at the moment. The feeling is that uh, there is, and it's unbelievable, the level of strictness which the government is managing. You know, they gave, they provided for measures in this, you know, serious, obvious crisis. They provided with measures that are stricter than some measures that we have in place in in our legislation anyway. So the response of the government to this crisis in general, but to the crisis in prison, and the measure that on the 11th of March the government passed to reduce prison population is stricter than many other provisions that we already have in our legislation, which is, if you think about it, it's Mm. crazy. Mm. It's crazy. That's what the government has been able to do.
8: Could you tell us a little bit more about some of those specific measures that the government has introduced?
6: It's uh, early release for prisoners with less than 18 months of... uh, They still have to serve less than 18 months, uh, which we already had in our legislation, these provisions, and we already have plenty of people serving their sentence outside prison. But they introduced this one which has a fast track, yes, because obviously the point is what's going to happen in the next week, not what's going to happen in the next three months. Uh, So there is this fast track measure, uh, but uh, it can be used only in conjunction with electronic tagging, which basically we don't have in Italy. I mean, we have the legislation, we don't have the devices. So. But but according to this new piece of legislation, for prisoners that have to serve less than six months, electronic tagging is not needed. So basically, although the legislation says 18 months, in practice it means six months, because 18 months would be if we had electronic tagging, which we don't, because we have some devices, but they are already in use. Uh, So basically we are talking about it's a measure for people has less than six months of starve, which is, we are talking about like 5,000 people, but then there are some restrictions, so in practice, probably it's going to apply to 2,000, 3,000 people, which is ridiculous. We have uh, like 14 people, 14,000 prisoners more than the prison capacity. So just yeah. to reach... Legal capacity, we should get. Re- we should release 14,000, mm-hmm. and we probably, with thanks to this measure, we will probably release like 2,000. So it's ridiculous. And 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 outside prison, we have plenty of people serving the sentence outside prison without uh, electronic tagging, and there are evidence that everything is fine with them. They are not committing crime. They're Relapse rate is lower than the relapse rate of the prisoners. So, you know, all the data are available and it's nothing new. It's been there for 30 years. But nevertheless, the government hasn't been able to do anything more than that. You know, enough enough of the parliament is screaming that they are releasing thousands of Mm. prisoners.
8: Yeah, it's really interesting to hear you say that because I've been following the international media regarding the situation for folks in prison in Italy during the coronavirus pandemic and it feels like often the media sort of frames it as though the government's response has been really positive and generous, but what you're saying is actually these provisions were already embedded in legislation and the government's response has actually been incredibly strict and harsh and limited and so much more needs to be done. Yeah, it
6: is a stricter measure than those that were in place. That they, they still are in place in our know, mm. legislation. The only point is that there is a fast track for this, so for sure, some people, some you know, several hundreds of people will be quickly released thanks to that.
8: And Alessio, I'm really curious to hear about what the groups you're involved in. In Italy are doing to try and shift the pendulum back towards a more decastral approach?
6: Well, to be honest, we are, so far we haven't been very creative. We, we have been basically uh, repeating what we have been saying for, for the last 30 years, which is the, the length of the history of, of my organization. Crime is decreasing in the country, uh, for instance. Uh, We have evidence that alternatives to detention and alternative sanction are less expensive, are more effective in preventing new crime, are more effective in uh, producing social reintegration. We have a system of alternatives to detention which is healthy and and effective. Uh, I think we still have, as a country, a mistrust in these uh, big public uh, uh, real estate projects and investments. Because we have in, the, in our history we have so many cases, for instance, of building prisons, big projects for building new prisons that end up in corruption, in scandals. So this, uh, there is some skepticism around this idea that oh, there is a, an overcrowding uh, emergency, Let's start, you know, an emergency building plan for for new prison. There is some sceptic some skepticism around that, not only, you know, in different part of the, the public opinion. Uh, so this is some somehow uh, restraining the idea of uh, uh, the idea that building new prison is the is or might be the solution. This comes after Italian history I'm, I know for a fact that that's not the case in other countries, and the other thing is try to uh, and this is difficult as well nowadays try to to keep a strong alliance with all the organizations that are on the same page and and we try to to stick together and try to Raise our voices as, as much as possible, but that's difficult as well. Because, uh, because my feeling, you know, in my experience that, uh, as politics has become more personalized and more conflictual, it's, it's more difficult to, uh, to build, uh, a consensus of Different organization with different background. Uh, let's say, which usually in Italy it's a relevant issue with Catholic uh, background and and lay background, for instance, uh, around uh, something which you know might be a relevant piece of, uh, of 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 work for both sides. But nevertheless, it's difficult to to get them together. Uh, in, a, in the political advocacy uh, against the government, more so than in the past.
8: Before we wrap up, I was wondering, is there anything that we haven't had a chance to talk about that you'd like to, that you'd like to yeah, mention?
6: I don't know. The main point is, in our view, is that at the moment, for instance, uh, because there still is this issue of isolation of prisoners that to some extent could be easy, easily uh, alleviated by technology nowadays. This idea of prisoners an isolated community uh, shouldn't be like that anymore. Uh, should be easier and, and, and easy to communicate with your relatives uh, and it isn't, and, and this is a little bit weird. Uh, we have a legislation that allows you to talk with, the, with your relatives for 10 minutes each week. But when this legislation was passed in the 70s, that wasn't probably a restriction. It was mm. you know something similar to what many uh, people working. Uh, Far away from their family, were doing in the 70s. They were probably calling home for 10 minutes every week because it was expensive and you didn't have a phone in the, in the place where you lived, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it wasn't a restriction. It was uh, it was uh, was similar to to, to 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 the rest of society. Nowadays, 10 minutes per week is crazy. And and it shouldn't be, and and I think there are many things around prisons like there, there are like that in, in everyday life in prison life in prison, but then nowadays uh, are more obvious. People, you know, in these times of uh, anxiety of fear, you should be able to talk with your family as much as possible, and there's really no reason why you shouldn't do that. But, but but that's the situation. And to some extent that's also, this links with what you were saying about uh, going beyond prison. Prison is a technological device to some extent. Prison uh, is not, it's not a religious thing. It's a device you use to, to control some part of the population. And as a technological device, even though it still is so popular, it should be be obvious to us that it's also an outdated technological device.
8: And lastly, Alessia, how can people find out more about the work that you and the organizations that you're involved in do?
6: Hardly, because we hardly publish anything in English. I know we should, but we don't. We, we are, we intend to, to release some more stuff in English in, uh, in the next days, probably through, uh, our social media, but also to, there is an NGO network, it's called liberties.eu. We probably will share most of our English material there as well.
8: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today, Alessio. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You're on three CR Thursday breakfast, eight five five AM and you've just been hearing from Alessio Scandura from the organization called Antigone about the coronavirus related protests in prisons across Italy. Mm-hmm.
9: Just like the rest But then I, I feel a strain My body's under arrest I just want to be somebody else's interest Put me to the right And stop pushing me to the left I mean like body images Putting the weight on my chest How can we keep up with the celebrity trend? How can I be a populist friend? If I'm a populist friend I'll be that last on the bend I don't want to be me again I don't think that I can really handle I'm collecting all these likes and follows But really, inside I'm feeling hollow But wait, if I get that perfect picture I'll be feeling better tomorrow This world that I live in just makes me feel uncomfortable in my own skin Without money, how do I win? How do I fit in? I just want to be thick, but then I want to be thin so I don't, so I don't.
10: now, mm-hmm. 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 we've been here since the beginning, descended from secret obligations, we still stand by those. Mm-hmm. as we dream in the now. Born into it a soon slippery checked history, man has been no mystery, stolen removed, indigenous liberties, space power before understanding humility. the humility. with artillery, hostilities, spread upon to the cages, Now we get less the wrong credits. Song to a divers by celebrating strong, celebrating, eminent and shaker and your don't in the lands, wisdom we do belong. These words are seeds that thieves can never take from ow, mother's womb, prison, always beyond apocalypse is wrong, so don't extend room Roman restriction, trapped 10, nations, the colonial system assimilation, prescription. Sprippin' never trap, we oversee a glistening ancestors, wisdom forever more, given y'all. Mm-hmm. Yes, we would always the vibe. No matter what they do, do we never come down? Mm-hmm. Yes, we would lower survive. Yes, we would lower the Yes, we would lower survive. Yes, we would lower survive. the No matter what they do, do we never come by? Mm-hmm. Yes, we would lower survive. Yes, we would lower with the 7, 8, date there was nothing but black, there was magic manifested in stacks So the gun barrel tried to bring on genocide to collapse But now, 200 plus scenes have elapsed. Conquest didn't work, caught abandoning youth tracks Packed for the pain of generations impact Put it back to this constant hideous attack. But yet we stand strong, inspired of all of that Quick sense, snakes, and us, yes, there's a problem With a pile of times, true, mashups, galazin The richer we got up to the sand and That's that like, silence And I'm shushed, I'm recreated, just aspirin So that's the color through the policy and we family And you, it's a black world rising It's a black world rising. Yeah, we always surviving. Yes, we will always survive. No matter what they do, we never gonna die. Yes, we will always survive. 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 No matter what they do, we never gonna die. Yes, we will always survive. Yes, we will always survive.
8: You're listening to 3CR 855 AM and this is Thursday Breakfast. Thank you so much for joining us on Thursday Breakfast. I was wanting to start with, would you just like to introduce yourself for listeners?
7: Yes,
0: um, my name is Peaches and I am a sex worker in so-called Melbourne.
8: Amazing. And so we've asked you to join us today to have a bit of a chat about the impacts of the current coronavirus pandemic on sex workers. Maybe let's just launch straight in and just to particularly start by talking about what are some of the impacts that you're already seeing?
0: Um, well, I guess the the main impact for now is, is economic um, and probably also just the, the usual issues with um, stigma. So I suppose for a lot of workers, um, like they're already living with um, pre-existing conditions like maybe autoimmune diseases or diabetes um, or perhaps... You know, someone that they're living with, a family member, housemate, or whatever, um, has one of these pre-existing conditions. So that makes kind of decisions about complicates decisions about whether or not they work, um, and also um, the fact that we, um, you know, we are seeing a huge decline in the number of in the number of clients coming to see us, um, and yeah, and then the fact that we don't have any sick leave we don't have annual leave, we don't get income protection, um, and many of us won't actually have access to any of the the stimulus packages that are coming through. Um, So I think that that's probably, yeah, the the biggest thing at the moment. Um, And obviously, like, a lot of sex workers are already members of uh, vulnerable communities. So, um, you know, drug users, migrant workers, um, people experiencing homelessness, people in violent relationships, with physical and mental health problems Um, and many of these people um, are being forgotten about or actively excluded um, from relief efforts.
8: Mm. Yeah, because we've heard a lot in the past um, week or so about the government's efforts to, you know, introduce various stimulus packages for certain industries um, that are highly casualised, such as the tourism industry or the hospitality industry. Mm. But I personally, I haven't heard a single word about any sort of um, compensation for loss of income for sex workers. Um, Yeah. Sorry, you go.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's a huge problem. Um, But, yeah, as you said, it's a problem across so many different industries. So... um, I'm a former hospitality worker and I'm still in touch with a lot of people in that industry who are really scared at the moment. Um, They're looking at ways to access Newstart and things like that because they've lost so much work um, and and they're unable to access those safety nets. Um, And we know that even at the best of times, it can be very, very difficult for people to access that. Um, So I think that uh, you know we are going to be seeing um, an increase in in really <laughs> horrible forms of poverty and um, and homelessness, and, yeah, particularly for people who are already, like, um, experiencing homelessness. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I think things are going to be quite bad.
8: Mm. Yeah, can we talk maybe a little bit more about that, about your sort of fears about the longer-term impacts um, that mm. the, the coronavirus and people's responses and fears to the coronavirus might have um, for sex workers here and around so-called Australia.
0: Yeah, so I mean, obviously, like we've talked a bit about the um, like the economic aspect of it all, um, and I think yeah, um, there's obviously the the health aspect. Is that a lot of workers um, do have um, pre-existing conditions that can make them more vulnerable to um, coronavirus, um, but also I think that one of the One of the issues that we're seeing, um, unfortunately, is the issue of stigma. Um, Sex workers are often viewed as um, vectors of disease, um, obviously inaccurately, um, but um, it is one that unfortunately sticks. Um, And while we have always been at the forefront of um, safer sex and hygiene practices, um, unfortunately, we are already seeing a lot of uh, non-sex workers, um, making pretty horrible comments or trying to, um, uh, distance themselves, uh, from sex workers, um, believing that we are spreading the disease. Um, and yeah, that's, that's really disappointing. Um, you know, I think that sex workers are probably in a similar kind of category to, uh, like health workers. Um, as far as risk is concerned um, but to my knowledge I haven't really seen the same kind of um, stigma and distancing from health workers that I've seen um, around sex workers so yeah it's pretty disappointing and I think um, that kind of I mean we're all uh, what was a quote I heard someone say the other day it was you know just because um, just because we are social distancing doesn't mean we have to be antisocial mm-hmm. um, and so I think, yeah, that kind of like isolation of, of sex workers um, and stigma of sex workers can be really damaging long-term.
8: Absolutely. And, yeah, I think it's such an important point to make that, you know, while, while the impacts for people working in the sex industry are common across many industries that are also casualised, like we were talking about before, there is that particular impact of stigma and those myths that just, like, you know, really yes. reinforce, um, yeah, the huge consequences that... Um, Folks who are doing sex work are going to face over the coming weeks and Mm. months.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
8: And so, on that note, I wanted to ask. you know, do you think that there are ways that we can maybe try to almost like flip the script and going off something that you said before about like actually sex workers are leaders in, in terms of, you know, safety and intimacy and hygiene. Like are there ways that we can sort of try and challenge this dominant, this dominant discourse and myths and actually sort of like, yeah, reposition sex workers as being, as being like experts in this field really?
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, the, there's always the, the thing that we're constantly saying, which is listen to sex workers. Um, and um, yeah, try to, you know, actively challenge when you when you hear people saying these um, these sorts of things, I try to actively challenge it. Um, but yeah, I think also there's like really, I think more kind of like tangible ways to support sex workers and stuff, which is you know, also like paying paying sex workers, giving money to sex workers, whether that's through um, you know, there's a current GoFundMe page. Um, to raise money for um, vulnerable workers at the moment, um, or that could just be um, paying for your porn while you're being quarantined um, is is also a really wonderful way to help, <laughs> um, and things like that. Um, also, you know, you can have a look at like Swap has released um, some really great information um, about safer sex and, and hygiene practices for sex workers. Um, but I think that this sort of information is really helpful for uh, for everyone. So that can be stuff about, you know, asking asking your sexual partners questions about um, their health um, and um, previous travel, uh, making sure that you're washing your face, your hands, your body um, immediately before and after sex. Um, for us, it's, you know, keeping a really clean workspace. Um, so, I don't know, clean your room or wherever you're having sex, <laughs> Um and um, changing, you know, many of us are looking at changing the, the types of services that we're offering. So whether that's moving from, um, you know, IRL services, say in a brothel or escorting or whatever, to um, online or phone sex or something like that, um, you know. And um, yeah, so I think that that's, that's advice that's really useful for anyone who wants to engage in in sex in the time of coronavirus.
8: Mm. Totally, yeah. um, and also sort of just makes me think about how, you know, all these these sort of practices that we're adapting during this time and these, you know, these changes that we're advocating for and demanding, you know, that we also want to be thinking in the longer term about how do we try and make sure they're sustainable beyond just this period of the coronavirus pandemic, um, you know, yeah. and actually become embedded so that we can, you know, work towards, like, more transformative social change in a bunch of ways that isn't just during this period of crisis.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I mean some of that is um carrying on some of the like health and hygiene practices from this time, which I think is stuff that we really should have been doing that a lot of people should have been doing anyway. That sex work is absolutely practice anyway. You know, when I everyone was freaking out because they couldn't find hand sanitizer and you know, I'm like, Well, I've got three bottles in my room because it's just a part of my
3: totally
0: it's just a part of my work practice and everything. Um, but more than that, I think also just the um like the mutual aid mm. um aspect I think is really important to to carry on um even after the crisis. Um like I've seen we saw it around the bushfires, these you know, the community kinda of really come together to support each other through the bushfires, which was really like heartwarming. Um, you know, I'm I'm from rural New South Wales and so it was really beautiful to see how people came together around that. Um, I don't think people have been, like, quite as community-minded with the coronavirus, which has been, you know, with all the the hoarding, which has been really um, unfortunate.
10: Mm.
0: Um, But at the same time, I have seen, you know, different Facebook groups um, popping up um, to try and sort of support people through um, helping each other, um, which is really great. And I think it's just the way we should be working together, Um, whether in crisis or not. Yeah.
8: And yeah, what, I guess on that note, like what what can we and listeners be doing to support, you know, friends and loved ones um, who are sex workers and what sort of support is out there at the moment?
0: Um, Yeah, so obviously um, for those with money, um, donating money is really great. Um, I think just also like, as I said before, just because we're social distancing doesn't mean we have to be anti-social. So keeping up um, like social ties, I think it's the same kind of advice for for most communities. Um, it's you know I don't think that the advice is necessarily different for how to support for how to support sex workers so much. Um, it's just that we're often left out mm-hmm. um, or excluded from that because of um, because people either either it's on that kind of government level because um our work is delegitimized so we aren't included in um in you know stimulus packages or whatever else um or on a more social level because um you know because we are stigmatized and viewed as vectors of disease and um whatever else um so i think just yeah trying to be more inclusive um is yeah mm. great
8: <laughs> is there anything else you know that we didn't get to cover that you'd sort of like to, yeah, just like to add before we wrap up the interview.
3: Um.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I suppose that um, just to say that like um, mutual aid is already a really deeply entrenched part of um, the sex worker community. Like we already have really well established um, networks of care, um, and so for us so we're going to continue to um, provide support to each other in the ways that we always have um, and that sex work is some of the most resourceful and resilient people that I've ever met um, and we're just going to keep that up
8: absolutely thank, thank you stay breakfast
0: no worries thanks Max.
8: You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast and you've just been listening to a chat that I had with Peaches on the impacts of the coronavirus pandemic for sex workers. Stay tuned for more.
1: Community radio is your antidote to social isolation. Stay connected and listen to 3CR. 855 AM, 3CR digital and streaming and podcasting online at 3cr.org.au. Here's
7: my blood with the eyes of the panther. With your cosmic skin and a
3: select of you, dancer. Oh, you should know this, but now your energy is loud. I've been knocking you directly, want to see you in the car. Holy love. Miranyi. Holy love. Mirawanini. Make you look up in the paranoid place. Spinning in and out of space. Onward oh, no to Istanbul. Millennial. We should know this by now. Your spirit is a glow. I'll be knocking you directly when I see it out. Show.
1: 3CR Community Radio, 855
0: AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live.
1: You're listening to 3CR. We really are in unprecedented times, and 3CR, as your local community broadcaster, is trying to do our part to minimise the spread of the coronavirus throughout the community. At the front of our minds is protecting the most marginalised and vulnerable, but we are still here, and we'll continue broadcasting 24 hours a day with radical alternative content throughout this period, but things will sound a bit different. Some programmers will present their shows on the phone, and we'll be finding creative ways to bring you our regular programming. So stay tuned, stay safe, and be kind to each other.
8: Next, we're going to be hearing an interview that I did with Maru Moravia Bando. Maru joined me on the phone from Washington to talk about how community organising and advocacy in the time of the coronavirus must aim towards the broader goal of abolition and how that advocacy needs to centre the voices, experiences and leadership of undocumented immigrant communities targeted for incarceration. Thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today on Thursday Breakfast. First of all, would you just like to introduce yourself for listeners?
2: Sure. Um, Thank you for the invitation. First of all, my name is Maru Moravillalpando. I'm a community organizer uh, here in the Seattle, Tacoma, Washington area in the United States.
8: We're talking today about the coronavirus pandemic. So in terms of organizing within your community, what are some of the key issues that you're seeing at the moment?
2: Well, um, I think there's several things that is going on with people like me as immigrants in the United States. you know, I've, I've been in the United States for a really long time, for over 20 years, mainly uh, with no papers. And when I see uh, how people react to this crisis, it reminds me of how our, com- our undocumented community has survived. And we always feel that there's no certainty on what we can do. We can never really plan long term. We know that there's there's gonna be an emergency with when immigration customs enforcement talks uh, knocks at our door and our lives are destroyed. So now that I see people reacting to this this pandemic, uh it makes me feel that in a way uh our own our, our immigrant community has been prepared for this for a long time. Um so I feel like our communities don't feel as stressed as other communities. Um And even like immigrants, we have to flee our countries, mainly sometimes because of emergencies, uh, either because of political or economic um, or natural disasters. So I think in a way we're kind of, you know, used to to uncertainty. And so I feel that we are still not freaking out as much as (laughs) many Mm -hmm. other communities have. Um, And, uh, you know, obviously we don't wish this on anybody. Um, and I think that's why we get so many communities right now overreacting sometimes and panicking. And I think our work is to ensure that, you know, people, first of all, don't panic and they can see the bigger picture of what's going on. And also to take uh, the moment to pause everything literally to make sure that we make long term changes and not just these temporary changes, not only to avoid the, the, the virus, but also how do we actually... Uh, pause the world to uh, undo all the harm that has been done throughout centuries um, in many communities like mine.
8: And what is being done, if anything, to prevent the outbreak of coronavirus in immigration prisons in your area?
2: Well, the detention centers, um, as they call them here, um, are known for being dangerous places. Uh, a lot of people have died inside those walls um, being under the custody of immigration customs enforcement or um, uh, customs border patrol is it 's dangerous uh, just uh, about a week ago, another woman died. a young woman from Guatemala died under ice custody um, here in the detention center in Tacoma, Washington in twenty uh, eighteen and twenty uh, seven, uh, eighteen and nineteen we saw several outbreaks of um, chicken pox and mumps. Um, there's constant, constant stories of medical neglect. So if the place is already a dangerous place um, that has not only medical neglect and um, outbreaks happening, but also are very, uh, very unsanitary conditions, mm-hmm. it makes us really worry about what's happening with COVID-19. So, for example, uh, we know that Throughout the world, people are um, changing their habits, uh, not only washing their hands for longer periods of time. more often uh, we not only are uh, told that you know we have to keep distance from each other and not touch our faces, etc, none of those things are possible in a detention center. First of all, in this detention center, we um, are told all the time uh, throughout the six years that we have been working with people detained in the nineteen hunger strikes that we have supported of those detained. Um, every time they go on hunger strike, the biggest complaint uh, besides food um, is medical neglect. And then people go into details as to, for example, wearing um, uniforms that are already being worn by somebody else. Um, when they're sent to laundry, they're not washed with soap. Uh, so people end up with a lot of skin rashes. Uh, underwear is not new. It's actually being worn by somebody else. And it's not only worn by somebody else that you can tell it's, it's, it's dirty. And so, um, there are too many unsanitary conditions inside and impossible to have extreme cleanliness um, in a, in a jail, in a, in a cage. Um, and if you add to that, the fact that these detention centers not hold, they don't hold like 50 people or 40. They hold over hundreds of, and sometimes thousands of people. Um, So, for example, here, we have talked in the past two days with about four four different units within the detention centers. Uh, I believe there's 12 to 15 units. We're in touch with at least four of them. And each of them have reported to us that each unit is at capacity. So, for example, one unit told us, oh, there's about 50 people here. Another one said there's a 100 of us. So even if they're given uh, soap, Um, the the way this guy explained it to me he said yes they gave us extra soap but that's not going to last for a 100 people Mm -hmm. Uh, and we cannot have a social distance as they've been saying in the news Um, so we are extremely worried that not only the conditions are terrible for this uh, virus to to, uh, expand once it gets there because people come in and out of the detention centers anyway the only protocols that immigration customs enforcements have set up is to place uh, flyers in English and then have guards every other day coming in and telling people to wash their hands. And the latest move was to suspend all social visits indefinitely at detention centers. And if you add to that the fact that now even phone calls are not happening and video calls are not happening either, people are having a hard time uh, communicating with their families and with their lawyers. So they're extremely isolated. And there's no way if somebody gets this uh, disease that they're actually going to be able to have the medical care they require in in a detention center.
8: Mm. So, Maru, what are you and other advocacy groups led by migrant, imprisoned and undocumented folks calling for in relation to the coronavirus pandemic?
2: Yeah, the first thing we wanted to know was for the local Department of Health to go in and figure out what was happening. And instead, they ignore us and brush us off, saying that we were wasting their time. Um, That told us that obviously they don't care about people detained. Then we went to the governor, and the governor just told us uh, more than a week later, um, when we reached out to his office, that they're in communication with um, ICE and with GEO, the corporation that owns and runs the detention center. And they're asking them to follow the guidance, quote unquote guidance, okay, not restrictions. Mm-hmm. They call them guidance of uh, social distance and all of, all of the other items. Um, we also are uh, trying to talk with our congressional delegation um, to make sure that they um, impose not only the release of those that are at risk, uh, and so we have we work with. Uh, legal organizations here to file a lawsuit in behalf of some of our members that are detained. Um, eh, Those that are over 50 with diabetes, um, those that have heart conditions or any other underlying illnesses that that are at risk, we want those to be released first and then we want everybody else released. Um, We also want a moratorium on transfers and deportations. And just this on, um, I'm sorry, Tuesday, uh, 33 people were deported from here, from Tacoma, Washington. Uh, we know that Honduras and uh, Guatemala, uh, Panama are not taking people, but we know that Mexico is. So um, we assume that those 33 probably end up in Mexico. Uh, and if those 33 were either exposed somehow, are carriers of the virus, what ICE is doing is just helping spread the virus to other countries as well. Uh, remember, Mexico doesn't have that many cases in comparison to what the U.S. Mm-hmm. is going through. Um, and we want uh, immigration enforcement to to end altogether. Um, just California announced a lot of restrictions in um, you know the entire state. There's a lot of, of places that are. Deciding to, to stay put, right? Not be like in quarantine, the entire towns. Yet, ICE still, uh, is going, uh, with business as usual. Uh, they're still detaining people. Um, here on Friday, they detained a person in our town and they, they took this person to a building that is supposed to be in shutdown for two weeks because there was a case of a person with coronavirus in that building. And there were all the news saying that this building, uh, which is an administrative building in a city called Tukwila, was uh, in, in shutdown for two weeks, starting March 5th. And yet, on Friday, this person was taken to that same building that is not supposed to be on operation. So ICE goes about life like nothing has happened. The entire world is almost at standstill, but ICE is not. And not only that, they're requesting even more money right now to set up places uh, to quarantine people while in detention at the border. Um, it's just it's, it's, they have no shame at all. And, and we want to make sure that the congressional delegation um, helps us do all these moratoriums. But we also want our governor to impose the same restrictions that they have imposed in businesses, schools and normal life they should be also imposed on uh, the detention centre. Why is that the detention centre is exempt of all these restrictions? It's not like the virus is not going to cross those walls. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we're working really hard to make sure that all authorities are doing something.
8: Do you worry that the coronavirus crisis allows your government and governments around the world to strengthen carceral and punitive border regimes? Or... Alternatively, um, do you see it as a time where maybe we have you know more leverage to actually advocate for abolitionist strategies and responses?
2: I think this is a a time where it has happened before where where these authoritarian regimes go about um, imposing policies that make their job easier and ours more difficult mm. um, obviously, like I said there the ICE is already looking at getting more money uh, to expand their um, quote-unquote, detention centers, and to expand their enforcement. Uh, but it's also an opportunity for us to call not only for the release of those sick, but for everybody released, right? This is the time for us as abolitionists to push uh, for the end of the carceral system. Um, look at what Iran did. They released yeah. thousands of, 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 of people in prisons. Spain just released people under um, also immigration custody. Uh, uh San Francisco is looking at that. The commissioners in New York City are also asking the Department of Corrections there to release people in, in, in prisons and jails. There's a lot of, of communities that are, are fighting to either uh, reduce or pretty much end with our prison population and make sure that everybody is released, and that's exactly what we're trying to do here. We know that ICE will always uh, look for a way to expand their their terror, their reign of terror, of terror. But this is also a good time for us to make sure that people fight for those that nobody thinks about. You know, we all worry about ourselves, and people go and buy tons of toilet paper and hand sanitizer. But what about people that nobody sees, that nobody knows what's going on with them, that don't receive medical care, and if they get this virus? They're going to die because they're not going to receive the medical care that they require. So I think that this is a, a chance for us to push back uh, and to make sure that our abolitionist uh, work uh, grows and more people that po- possibly before didn't agree with us, they might agree with us now that it's time to end with this prison system altogether.
8: And how do we collectively try to make sure that the decarceral and abolitionist responses and strategies that we're advocating for now in this moment are actually long term and last beyond the current crisis?
2: Well, that's a great question because we are working with a lot of groups here in the United States to ensure that um, we have these specific uh, demands of moratorium uh, with the aim that it will be long lasting. But also we're looking at the funding of these um, uh, incarceration systems. So we're looking at diverting all the funding that they have right now to incarcerate people and imprison people to actually move it to this uh, social safety net that is required at this moment. So the United States doesn't have um, a medical system in place. Uh, and this is one of the many reasons why we have become such an epicenter of of the virus. So we want money diverted to a, a system where everybody, regardless of uh age income nationality immigration status can can actually have medical services we also are looking at establishing systems where regardless of immigration status people receive unemployment benefits um we're also are looking at the basics of the basics making sure that people have housing right um mm-hmm. like the the governor here in Washington just declared a moratorium on evictions but although that's good uh, that doesn't stop the accumulation of debt that uh, for those that are uh, in a ha- in a housing where they cannot afford anymore. And so for us, it's diverting all of those uh, monies that Immigration Customs Enforcement has taken by force many times, some other times willingly given by the Congress to all those social services that should be in place. I think that COVID-19 has waking up people to the fact that the capitalistic system, is uh is driving is robbing us of everything that we need to survive as as poor people right and for those that have been oppressed for so many years are the first ones to go down and so when we advocate for people uh that are are at risk of the virus we need to remember that really at the end everybody's at risk of the virus and having a prison system it only increases those um, outbreaks. So the prison system in itself is dangerous to this kind of public health concerns, but it's also dangerous to everything else in our society. So this is a good time that whenever we do specific demands of our governments, um, that there should be long lasting, but they also go into the effect of making sure that uh, any kind of enforcement that is harmful to our communities should end. And instead, making sure that we invest on social services and and safety nets for all of our communities.
8: And do you have any thoughts or suggestions for groups around the world who are trying to support and advocate for people who are targeted and impacted by immigration prisons during the coronavirus pandemic?
2: Yes, I think that we should not rely on government anyway. I mean, they, they are there and we should make sure that they do what they're supposed to do. Uh, because at the end of the day, they operate with our own money, and so they're working for us. But uh, something that we have said in the immigrant community here in the U.S. is that we protect each other and we take care of each other. So uh, we have, for example, a group of uh, physicians that are looking at, okay, once people are released uh, from the detention center, what kind of medical care they're going to require. How do we ensure that those that are um, infected with the virus do receive the medical care they need, but those that didn't, that might be possibly exposed and have to go on quarantine, first of all, are housed um, in our house in in places that don't feel like a jail or another detention center, and second, that they do uh, have um, the medical care they they, they need. A lot of the people here in the detention center are not from our state. So we're looking at for how long can we house people and then make sure they go back to their families in other places in the country. And um, more, most importantly, uh, for those that need to be quarantined, how do we keep the, their, their spirits up? So we're looking also, even as of now, as having pen pals, uh, writing parties uh, where people write letters to people in detention or possibly in the future uh, in quarantine. So they don't feel as, as lonely as, uh, you know, anybody right now in self-quarantine feels already lonely and possibly, um, bored. Uh, so we're looking even at those kind of little things that, uh, other communities can, can help us do. We have a lot of people that are looking at, um, well, can we have phone calls for them? Are we going to have cell phones for them? So we're preparing us to, as people get released from detention, uh what how do we make them come back to normal life in a crazy moment as it is right now but then as we go back to normal in the future how everybody that that ends up hopefully being free from the detention center also can go back to normal life with everybody else
8: and before we wrap up is there anything else that you'd like to add that we haven't addressed yet
2: well you know for us in our group la resistencia we believe that um our leadership comes from inside and the solutions come from inside those walls. Um, so although we know that people are, are in danger right now and they're obviously worried about the exposure of this virus, they're also organizing and they're mm-hmm. fighting and they're the ones calling us and letting us know about other people that are possibly infected or that were taken to medical isolation. So although people are victims of the system, they don't see themselves as such they see themselves as survivors and organizers. And so we always want to remind people that if you're in touch with somebody that is in the prison system of any kind, um, don't treat them as victims. Treat, treat them as leaders because that's who they are. They survived this, this system and we should listen to them as what the solutions are.
8: And lastly, how can listeners find out more about all the incredible work that you do?
2: Uh, we're on social media. Uh, we have Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We're La Resistencia NW. Uh, that's the resistance in Espanol, La Resistencia NW, NW for Northwest. Uh, and we have a website, LaResistenciaNW.org. Um, and people can sign up there for emails. We don't do a lot of emails. Uh, most of our calls to actions go through Instagram and, and, and other social media. Uh, but once in a while, we have really big petitions and a lot of asks for people to do. So we will do a couple of emails here and there. Um, But definitely we rely a lot on, on social media right now so people can follow us there.
8: Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about this. Really appreciate it.
2: Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it so much.
8: You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am and you've just heard from Maru Moravia Pando on the importance of centering the voices and leadership of people in immigration prisons and all prisons during the coronavirus pandemic.
3: And
0: I think that might be it for the end of the show. Thanks so much listeners for joining us this morning and we'll be back next
1: Thursday. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find NIBS in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.